Have, have you ever been disappointed by God? Has God ever let you down? Because God does that to me all the time. And if that's never happened to you, um, and you're a follower of Jesus, I want to congratulate you on your decision to follow Jesus and warn you that that's coming uh, eventually. Sooner or later, God will disappoint you, and um, and it's just a matter of time until he does. Um, but the good news is Palm Sunday is a special holiday that's set aside in the church for people who are disappointed with God or who are about to be disappointed with God uh, because that's what's going on on, on Palm Sunday. This week, as I mentioned to the children, this week is is Holy Week. It is uh, our observance of the events of the last week of Jesus' life. And um, we're going to be celebrating it really all the way until next Sunday. Um, and we've got uh, worship services and so forth. And I encourage you to be part of it. One of the interesting things that's uh, about Holy Week is that all of the days have have strange names. When I was a kid, I used to wonder, why is Good Friday good, right? Jesus is is arrested on bogus charges. He's... He's given a sham trial, and then he's nailed to a tree and and uh, killed. And I thought, what's good about that? And my mom, who is who's actually got pretty good theology, she said, well, it's good because if he hadn't died, then we wouldn't be saved. And that's basically what makes it a good a good day. So Good Friday is a good day, but it's kind of a strange name when you think about it. Easter is really strange because it's the name of the the occasion when we celebrate the resurrection of the of the the God of the Bible, and yet it's named after a pagan goddess from Germany, um, Ostara. And uh, the, the Venerable Bede, writing in the 700s, he said, it's kind of odd that for whatever reason, when Christianity first came to the British Isles, they named this holiday not Pascha, like all the Latin-speaking countries, France and, and, uh, German, uh, France and um, uh, Spain and so forth, they called it Pascha, but for some reason, in Britain, it was called Ostara after this uh, after this pagan goddess. So it's kind of strange when you think about it. Holy Thursday is is strange because no one knows what the word holy means. It's some church word, um, but it's okay. Well, I at least get the idea. It's a church word, um, but that wasn't strange enough. So uh, there's uh, Christians who call it Maundy Thursday, and uh, Maundy isn't even a word in the dictionary. If you look it up, you won't find it. It's a contraction of two Latin words, mandatum novum, and it has to do with during the Last Supper, Jesus uh, gave his disciples a new commandment, a a novum mandate. So Jesus gave the the disciples a mandatum novum, or mondi, because that's a mouthful. So mondi Thursday, another strange name. And Palm Sunday is a strange name when you think about it. Palm Sunday is a strange name because despite all of the palms you see um, around us and and uh, the the children who got them or didn't get them as the case may be um, how many times did it occur in our reading no peeking no peeking how many times did you see the word palm in our reading uh, the answer is none it's not in this reading there are four there are four biographies of Jesus in the Bible Matthew Mark Luke and John and palms are only mentioned in one of them in one of the, all, all four mention this triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, but only one mentions palms. And in fact, in fact, palms are only mentioned at all in the New Testament, the last quarter of the Bible. Palms are only mentioned twice, once in John 12, where they talk about Palm Sunday, 
And um, I think we've got that verse, actually. Yeah, Palm Sunday. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him. So that's how we know palms were involved. And then there's one other place in Revelation uh, Revelation 7. It also mentions palms. It says something. uh, There's a great multitude standing before the throne, and they were robed in white and had palm branches. Those are the only two mentions of palms in the entire New Testament. Um, so, so something is odd because we see them all through the Old Testament. If we look at the Hebrew Scriptures, the first three quarters of the Bible, palms are mentioned all the time. There's palm branches, there's palm trees, and they're perfectly ordinary things. In that part of the world, you'd imagine palms are not uncommon, and they're not uncommon in the Hebrew Scriptures. So, so what happened? Why, why did palms suddenly become un, uncommon in, in the period of time between the Old Testament and the New Testament? The reason is that something happened. Palms took on a new meaning. They had just been kind of a branch of a tree until this thing that happened. And when that happened, they acquired a whole new meaning. And it is that new meaning that helps us understand what's going on on Palm Sunday. And um, to help us to help us understand what's going on, I got two readings uh, from the books uh, of the Maccabees. Uh, these are part of... Uh, they're ancient, they're ancient writings. They go back further than the New Testament, so they predate the time of Jesus. But they're not part of our Bible, and they're not part of the Jewish Bible. So Jews do not, do not believe them to be inspired scripture, uh, neither do Protestants. There are Christians who, who understand them to be part of the canon of scripture. Uh, Orthodox and, and Roman Catholics do uphold the, the inspiration of these books. Uh, Protestants and Jews do not. So, so I'm not gonna read this. But it helps you understand what's going on. There were, there were, um, uh, the, the context is that, that, uh, at the time of the end of the Old Testament, that was about 400 BC. Oh, Cody's not here. I was gonna, I told him, I warned him that this sermon would have some history in it. He's not a fan. Um, so, uh, 400 BC, Israel was a, col- a province of the Persian Empire. And, um, they were they were a small a small frog in a in a very big puddle, um, and uh, they were just kind of a corner of this empire, and that lasted until Alexander the Great was born and he conquered the ancient world, and he conquered the Persian Empire along with it, and when he did, um, he he uh, turned turned uh, Israel from a Persian province into a Greek province, but otherwise things didn't change, and then um, Alexander ran out of worlds to conquer, so. He died in Afghanistan, and uh, his generals, his top three generals, split up his empire between them. And one of them that got, got the part with Israel in it. And that became a new, smaller empire all by itself. And Israel was a, col- a province of that empire. That lasted for about 200 years until there was a family of priests in Israel who said, we've had it with these foreigners. And instead of doing what they're supposed to do, um, offer the sacrifices to the pagan gods, they said, no, the, the, the God of our ancestors demands we behave differently. And they were called the, the Hyrcanus family, but they're best known for a member of the family named Judas Maccabeus. Uh, that was his nickname. Maccabeus means the hammer. And I love that nickname, Judas the hammer. And what Judas the hammer did, along with his brothers Simon and John and some others, is they threw off this foreign, uh, uh, foreign uh, uh, government. And so there was another period that lasted about a hundred years when Israel was an independent country again. It was a small country, but at least it was independent. And then the Romans came in and they, uh, um, a guy named Herod 
married into that family that had, that had been running the country for a hundred years. He married into the family and he became a governor under Rome. So kind of a complicated history. But there was this event where Judas and his, Judas Maccabeus and his family had been involved in this war of revolution to get rid of the occupying country. And the book of the Maccabees, the books of the Maccabees tell us about that. I'm not going to try and uh, describe this all. But if you look at verse 51 of 1st Maccabees 13, it says, On the 23rd day of the second month, in the 171st year, the Jews entered it with praise and palm branches, with harps and cymbals and stringed instruments, with hymns and songs, because a great enemy had been crushed and removed from Israel. And then in the second book of the Maccabees, we read uh, how um, Maccabeus, that's the hammer and his followers, the Lord leading them on, recovered the temple and the city. They pushed out the, the foreigners for the last time. They tore down the altars. They purified the sanctuary. And then they prayed the Lord that they would never again make the mistakes that got them in this place in the first place. But if they should ever sin, they'd be disciplined by him, not by foreigners. And so they they um, purified the sanctuary and they celebrated it. This is verse 6. They celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the Festival of Booths. In the Festival of Booths, that's, that happens in September. And people cut down branches of trees and so forth and they build little huts. Um, it's called the Shelter of Booths. They make little huts and they put palm trees on top uh, to keep the sun off. And that's what normally happened in September. And this is happening in April or May and they're saying, hey, we're going to celebrate this in the manner of the September thing. So we're going to cut palm trees and we're going to use them to celebrate what? They offered um, a celebrate in the manner of the Festival of Booths, um, therefore carrying ivy wand, ivy wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palm. They all, they offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his holy place. Such then was the end of Antiochus. He was the emperor who was called Epiphanes. So they got rid of this foreigner for the last time. And for a hundred years, they were actually an independent country. So now flash forward another hundred years after that, uh, about the time of Jesus, Jesus comes into town and people start waving palm fronds. It has a whole different meaning. It's not just a happy occasion. They're saying Jesus is the guy who's going to do just like Maccabeus did. Jesus is the new hammer. He's come to town to kick the Romans out. That's what's going on. That's what they were expecting. They had seen Jesus do miracles across the Holy Land. They'd seen Jesus bring Lazarus back to life. They knew that God's blessing was on him. They knew he was the Messiah, the king that God had promised. And naturally, they thought a king would kick out the foreigners. This new king would kick out the foreigners and they would have a new period of independence just like with Judas Maccabeus. So they were waving their palm fronds. It's easy for us to understand how frustrated they must have been later in the week when Jesus did not go along with their agenda. Jesus was working out his own agenda and they felt tricked. They felt that he had somehow somehow pulled the wool over their eyes, that he had fooled them into supporting him at risk of their lives. I mean, if the Romans had caught them waving the palm fronds around, they could have been crucified. And so they feel frustrated. They feel that Jesus has played a trick on them, that Jesus has promised them one thing and delivered so much less. That's why they were in the crowd 
on Friday screaming crucify him because Jesus had fooled them. That's what they thought. Now it's easy for us to say how dense could people be? But we're looking at it from this side of the resurrection and 2,000 years of understanding. But when we read the scriptures, we see everybody was uh, was completely missing the point here. Everybody in the crowd, all of his disciples, even his family, didn't understand what Jesus was up to. Nobody understood Jesus that day. And that is why we're like them, if we've ever been disappointed by God. Because we may understand Jesus, we may understand Palm Sunday. We may not have aspirations to be freed from a foreign government, but we have aspirations. We have things that we wish God would do, and God seems slow in doing them. We wish that God would would help us to sort out the situation with with our our job. We wish that God would somehow help us to figure out what to do about our job or maybe our school. We wish that God would would somehow intervene in the area of our finances and make the money go go further or last longer or both. And God doesn't seem to get behind our agenda. We wish that God would help us with our relationship or maybe help us start a relationship because she's really cute. She doesn't know I exist. I really want to date her. But God isn't arranging us to bump into one another the way I was hoping. God is disappointing me. Or maybe it's our health. Maybe maybe we're hurting. Maybe somebody we love is hurting. And we wish God would get involved in that. And God doesn't do it. So if Palm Sunday isn't a day of anything else. It is a day for people who are disappointed with God. The problem is that like that crowd, our prayer is, God, here's what I want. My will be done. That is our prayer. And it's a perfectly reasonable prayer. We tell God, this is what we want. The danger is if we become frustrated when God doesn't Get behind our agenda. Jesus says, he says, um, as he comes into the village, he cries. There's only two places in scripture where Jesus weeps. One is when his friend Lazarus dies and he goes to the grave and, and sees the grave. Jesus weeps there. And then this place where he comes near the city, he weeps over it saying, you've misunderstood. If only somehow you could understand what God is doing here. He says, if you, even you, had recognized on this day the things that make for peace, but they're hidden from your eyes. Indeed, the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up ramparts and they will hem you in and they will destroy you. And sure enough, 40 years later, that's what happened. The Romans um, uh, crushed a rebellion. Somebody came in and unlike Jesus, he wasn't the Messiah. But also unlike Jesus, he said, it's time to throw out these foreigners. And it worked for a couple of years until the Romans brought their legions in and destroyed Jerusalem. They destroyed the temple down to the last stone. And Jesus said, that's going to happen because you cannot see the thing that God is doing. You are disappointed with God and you will accept no substitutes for what it is you want. He says, they will crush you because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. The good news is 
that Jesus this week prays the prayer that we can't. Or we can't without his help. Jesus prays the prayer in the garden. He says, God, here's my agenda. These are the things I want. He says, let this cup pass from me. If there's any way for this to work except my crucifixion, that's what I want. But then he makes the prayer we all know that we have so much trouble with. The prayer we can rarely say, and when we can, we can barely say it. It is, thy will be done. Jesus says, this is my agenda. But instead of asking God to get behind his agenda, he says, Lord, you've heard what I want, but I want to be part of your agenda. And so he goes to the cross. He connects us with God. God sends his Holy Spirit and begins fixing and healing the parts of us that are broken and hurting. And over the course of our lives, we become day by day more and more the kind of people that Jesus was, the kind of people who can be trusted, as Dallas Willard says, who can be trusted with God's power. God can trust us with his power so that we can be part of his agenda. The lesson of Palm Sunday is that God is not a genie. God does not grant our wishes because too often our wishes result in us hurting others or even ourselves. And the other lesson of Palm Sunday is that it's okay to have an agenda. It doesn't do any good to go to God and say, uh, God, I, I really want these things that I don't, I don't want because God can see through us. It's okay to come to God with our agenda. But tack three things onto it. Tell God, God, this is my agenda. You know what I want. You know why I want it. But give me patience to wait. Give me patience so that I can wait out your reply. And then give me vision so that I can see how you are replying to my prayer, how you are responding to my prayer. And finally, when it disappoints me, because sometimes it will, give me faith to trust that what you're doing is the right thing. God is not a genie, and we're going to be disappointed. We're going to be as disappointed as the crowd that called for Jesus' execution. And there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong is when we miss the opportunity to, for God to correct us, to give us patience, vision, and trust. Amen.